your first lemonade stand, you got an idea, took a risk, and a business was born. Maybe you can't get investment from mom and dad in the form of lemons anymore, but your entrepreneurial spirit is stronger than ever. You are listening to Behind the Stand. My name is Alice. I'm sitting down with the people behind Great Ventures to talk about their stories of grit, failure, and how they took lemons and turned them into successful lemonade stands. On today's episode, we'll hear Jay's story. From Cherry Coke Empire to venture capital, Jay is a partner at Rhino Ventures who invests in high-growth, early-stage companies in Western Canada, backing companies like Clue, Thinkific, Article, and other catchy one-word name companies. Jay has gained a ton of knowledge that he generously shares as a prof at UBC, a mentor at Creative Destruction Labs, and on this podcast. Hey, do you want to give me a million dollars for my startup? No matter how easy they make it look on Dragon's Den, I don't think I'll ever be able to confidently ask investors for money. Even the thought of pitching makes me feel like an insecure teenager. Frankly, I think raising capital is a lot like dating. Now hear me out. Before meeting a VC, you're nervous and probably do a little cyber snooping. First impressions, they matter. You'll face a mountain of rejections, but all it takes is finding the one. And once you find it, you still probably won't score on that first date. It takes a while before either party decides to go steady. To get to the bottom of exactly when first-time founders should pitch to VCs, pitfalls to avoid, and technology trends to watch out for, I sat down with Jay to get his insights. But first, who's in the mood for a can of Cherry Coke? I ran this uh, cherry Coke empire in, uh, in I think it was fourth grade, might have been fifth grade. I obviously didn't know this term at the time, but there was this arbitrage opportunity that I had identified where there was a convenience store that was maybe three blocks away from the playground. And I would go and buy a, a 2-4, a 24 case of cherry Coke cans, which was all the rage back in the day. And I'd truck that back to the playground and then hawk those cherry Coke cans for a dollar, dollar fifty a can, and take the spread on what you could buy a two four four, which was five or six bucks, and then make the margin on the twenty four or thirty dollars I'd make from a case of, of cherry Coke. So that's that's rolling back the clock to the very first kind of hustle I had. That's, that's so uh, funny. Did you in your mind. youth have that margin profit calculation in your head, or you were just like, okay? No, frankly, like I was a pretty overweight kid. And I think a driving force behind this was that I got to, um, what's that uh, notorious B.I.G. song, like get high on your own supply. I, so I got to dip into my own cherry Coke supply. So the profit margin wasn't nearly as rich as it should have been. But I, I was definitely an enterprising entrepreneur. But also, if there was an opportunity for me to have a taste along the way, I, I, I partake. I mean, hey, I, I think I should be seeing your Cherry Coke empire on your LinkedIn resume. So I think we should go <laughs> update it now. I also read that you have a biology uh, degree from Queens. I went to Queens as well. Um, and that you love perusing marine aquaculture publications. So this might be a weird question, but I'm curious what patterns or models have you noticed in our ecosystem that can be applied to business? That's a really good question. 
And just to give you a bit of context on the biology piece, when I, when I first, I guess in high school era and before that, what I really wanted to be was a marine biologist. And so I made the fatal decision of going to Queens, which is a non-Oceanside University. You have Lake Ontario there, but like fatal mistake if you want to be a marine biologist, 101, do not go to uh, a landlocked uh, university. But um, getting back to your question, the obvious ones are kind of natural selection and the survival of the fittest uh, mindset of all that Darwinian behavior, that there's a natural kind of whittling out of uh, companies that takes place, of entrepreneurs, of talent, and there is a true fitness using kind of the biology term uh, effect that ends up taking place. And there's also really, if you want to take that a step further, you could even go down the path of saying within little micro environments, there are species of entrepreneurs that end up thriving a lot better than others. And there becomes that heavy specialization to withstand kind of the rigors of that micro environment, which I think you can apply taking that zooming back out. You can say that's and what ends up happening on broader ecosystems and why there's specialization within industries, within verticals, within business models that you'll end up seeing on a geographic basis. So that, that's the most most obvious kind of biology Darwinian approach to, to what happens in the startup economy. Interesting. So do you think it's a specialization of the species or the micro ecosystem that <laughs> plays a bigger factor? We might be stretching the limits of the analogy here, but um, <laughs> the I think that it's a combination of the two. So the specialization of the species being kind of the entrepreneur um, you'll find in environments like Vancouver, for example, that has a really acute supply and demand mis imbalance of the amount of, of capital serving this ecosystem. You'll find that the entrepreneurs that really make it are those almost those said, I don't really like the term, but like that, those cockroach type entrepreneurs that really understand the, the principles of bootstrapping, stretching every single dollar and just have this capital efficiency. Not it's not mindset, it's not just lip service like some medium post, but it's like embedded into their DNA, and that's that's maybe how I would describe that um, you know species specific natural selection that ends up happening into an ecosystem and translate that to an entrepreneur and how they perform in their uh, immediate environment. Okay, we can move off this topic. I don't know if I can pursue it any longer. <laughs> Um, so before you co-founded uh, Rhino Ventures, you started your own companies. Uh, can you tell us about the lessons you learned the hard way? Oh, there's so many. The biggest one, and for, for context, the, the one that I spent the most time on was it was a royalty-based financing platform for franchisees looking to get that initial startup capital for the franchise cost, the initial build-out of their, um, of whatever franchise they were purchasing. I fell into this trap, I think, of taking far too academic of an approach to trying to get validation, too much customer discovery, and too much, too many discussions with prospective customers versus just ship something, get it out the door, be as scrappy as you possibly can. There's incredible diminishing returns of the 100th customer discovery interview you've done versus what you learned already on the 50th. Just build something, get it out the door, iterate quickly and move with the market. And that's uh, that's always kind of haunted me of what prevented, I think, that business from really taking off was too much time in validation mode versus building mode. Hmm. And what was the implication of that? 
I went for this elongated customer discovery process where it was about perfecting what that MVP might look like and delaying that build. And it just it increased the um, the opportunity cost that I spent on that that business. And frankly, it was uh, I think what prevented that company from um, either raising the capital it needed to or convincing myself, frankly, that this was something that I should pursue as opposed to. So going down the Rhino Ventures path, which was what happened um, shortly thereafter, I decided to to um, to mothball that business. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like what's been drilled in in the incubators I've been through is like customer discovery is first. I've talked to people who has like knocked on a hundred doors to really understand the customer. I think that most people don't do enough interview process. But at the same time, as I'm iterating on my design, like it's really time consuming to talk to customers and it's harder to get those appointments. Anyways, I just think that it's a really different perspective that you're sharing because I've never heard of the pitfalls of doing it too much. There's definitive value in doing customer discovery. It narrows your focus. You're going to have a higher potential hit rate with that MVP. My my point is that there's incredible diminishing returns of customer discovery. There's some element of you, like if you have a product in market, you always want to be talking to customers. You always want to be iterating. But pre-product, there's diminishing returns of just stop talking to people, build something, ship it, then start collecting more feedback on what you should do from there. So as a venture partner now who meets hundreds of startups, what's one mistake that you see consistently as a venture capitalist now that you made yourself when you started your company as a founder? So I'm not sure if I actually made this mistake myself because I didn't spend a lot of time talking to investors, but this is my... I, instead of talking to investors, I was talking to customers. And I find a lot of entrepreneurs, instead of talking to customers or building product, talk to investors. And what investors want to see is that you've built a product, you've shipped it, and that there's early indications of product market fit. So the time that you spend talking to investors, if you're prior to that stage of maturity in your business, is extremely expensive time because the probability that an investor is going to write a check when there's low to no indications of product market fit uh, especially if you're a first-time founder, is incredibly low. So I think it's my, my number one uh, thing that I see in the feedback I provide to, especially young entrepreneurs and very early in the pursuit of their business, if they're spending way too much time talking to investors as opposed to building their business and, and selling their product and getting customers in the door. That's really interesting because I can share the other side of it from a founder. I've talked to my peers at the UBC incubator. A common question that they have is, yeah, how do we present ourselves to venture funds when we don't have any sales yet? For example, a hardware startup or a company with a strong prototype that needs funding first to turn that into a marketable product. So it's kind of like a chicken and egg problem. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, you're definitely seeing some of my bias come through here of uh, software and marketplace and e-commerce businesses that we tend to invest in at Rhino, which mm-hmm. don't have the same kind of upfront capital requirements that a hardware product or a, a medical device business would. So there's, there's definitely a time and a place and there's an, there's an appreciation from an investor that looks at those kinds of businesses and they have a different risk reward kind of matrix of how they're evaluating those early stage companies. I would imagine though, it's going to be something along the lines of 
does this founding team have an unfair advantage and an unfair reason why they're the team that's going to win in this category? Is the market incredibly attractive and does it support kind of a venture scale outcome? For most people sitting in the venture fund world, that means can this be a billion dollar plus business? Angels might have a different lens on that. And then they're going to be looking at what can this com- company achieve? What kind of enterprise value can this business achieve with its first $500,000 or a million dollars or whatever that pre-seed request is? Those are some of the criteria that kind of transcend whatever type of business model or industry an investor is investing in. And so that's um, those are the things, if I was trying to advise those entrepreneurs looking to pitch investors pre-product or pre-launch and pre-customer acquisition, those are the things they have to feel confident that they can nail uh, before talking to venture funds. Do you get a lot of people at that stage pitching to you? We get a lot of uh, inbound of very early stage, pre-product market fit, sometimes pre-product and uh, pre-customer acquisition validation. And we've invested in some businesses that are very, very, very early stage when we can check those boxes that this founding team has unfair advantage they, we run through kind of our founder checklist. They check off most of these the, the uh, topics. And we believe the market is there that can support a venture scale business. And we believe that there's limited execution risk because of the people behind it. We have done that where we will invest in a couple people in a slide deck or maybe there's an MVP. But it's the, it's the exception, not the norm for Rhino. I'm also curious around companies that you've said no to, but ultimately turned out to be a winner? That's a very good question. And um, in the venture world, people usually refer to that as your anti-portfolio of like your screw-ups of this is something I definitely should have invested in. And you use it to inform kind of the go forward investment decision making of like, what did we screw up here and how do we avoid making that same mistake twice? So there was a business, uh, there is a business, I should say, um, called Certain, which is a company based out of Victoria. I'm really good pals with the founder, CEO, or C3O, they call them. It's three founders, and it's not a CEO, <laughs> they say C3O. And I'm good pals with the, all the C3Os. And um, they walked into our office, would have been two, maybe two and a half years ago, gave us the opportunity to write um the first kind of $300,000 check into the business, which was small for our standards. But I had deep conviction that these people were the right people uh, for the market. And I, I knew and I trusted their ability to execute. We, uh, the lesson I learned here is we over-diligenced the market and uh, that they were originally tackling and got to the position where we thought there wasn't a venture scale opportunity to be built in this category. And so we ended up passing. And the core lesson here was that um, if the founding team is A plus, and if they are noodling around an interesting market opportunity, that there's we will underwrite and we will invest behind micro pivots. And the types of pivots we like to invest in are when you're pivoting the product around pivoting around a very interesting market. So you're trying to find what that product market fit is, but that market, the fundamentals of that market are still venture scale. So that that uh, missed opportunity would have been about a 35x uh, multiple on our initial check if we had uh, had the foresight of saying, hey, these are bankable, investable founders, and they're going to find a way to pivot around this market, which is what they eventually did. And so that was a that was a very expensive lesson. 
I actually just listened to a conversation this morning with the founder of Benchmark Capital, and he, I think, coined the term product market fit. And he was describing how product market fit is not always about iterating on the product; it's about iterating on the market. It's around finding the right market, and that's why it makes sense to kind of invest in the right people and the right ideas. How do you suggest first-time founders? Get an advantage in receiving capital, yeah. When they don't have the hyper growth yet, and when they don't have a previous record of building tons of successful companies. So I, I think the the best advice I can give is、um, it's going to seem kind of like a cop out, but it's the show and tell. Like you need to be able to tell the compelling story of where you're going to take this business and why this market is super interesting, or why. Just actually taking a step back, I think. Um, I think the reason why Andy Radcliffe describes product market fit that way is because if you if you look at some of the deeper technology innovations that have taken place, not they're not even at the time they might have been perceived、uh, more frontier technology innovations. They were、uh, products in search of a suitable market.、Um, so you can go back as early as like Vinod Kosla giving feedback to Sergey Brin on. And Larry Page on、um, on what should happen with Google's search algorithm. It, that was very much a product in search of an appropriate market and an appropriate revenue model to scale that business. Whereas I think the approach that we take is because we're investing less in frontier technology, where you might have a spin out from a UBC laboratory of some incredible technology that's in pursuit of a market. We much prefer the approach of betting on the individuals that have unfair reasons to be executing in that market. They may have worked in that category before. They know the incumbents incredibly well. They know who they're going to sell this to, and there's a whole bunch of. Embedded unfair advantage with that team and their ability to execute, and the product is the question mark. The market is the known entity. We just need to pivot the product around until we find that ideal product market fit. So it's a slightly different take than how Andy Radcliffe views things, and I think it just fundamentally comes down to a, a different kind of investing style and what you look for and what you're hunting for. Uh, but the advice to founders is the show and tell. You have to be able to tell the compelling reason why this is a venture scale opportunity, and you have to show me that there's proof that you can execute on this business. Show me that you can attract and retain the very best talent out there. Show me that you can tell the compelling venture scale vision and communicate that articulately and with conviction.、Uh, and you have to eventually prove to me that you, if this is a capital intensive business. That I believe you are going to be able to go and raise follow-on capital for this company. If it's not a capital-intensive business, you have to prove to me that you have the kind of operating style where you can run this business in a way that、um, you don't run out of capital. So whether it's cash flow positive, you believe it can serve as kind of a hybrid debt equity solution in the future. Whatever it happens to be, you have to prove to me that that future fundraising risk is materially diminished. What I've learned from you is that there's a two-way interview.、Um, you're definitely evaluating all the things that you described in a company, but companies should also be evaluating the type of ventures that they want to work with. Like you said, some ventures invest more in hardware,、um, whereas other、um, ventures might specialize in different areas where it can support the founder. Definitely. So tell me more about that. What does Rhino Ventures? What do you guys specialize in? And when you say early stage, how early? And yeah, like what types of companies do you guys usually have in your portfolio? 
So we invest um, across Western Canada. So despite growing up in the center of universe, Toronto, we invest <laughs> exclusively outside of, of uh, West of Ontario is kind of the turf that we like to, uh, to play in. We invest exclusively in pre-Series A deals. So I'll do the small Series A, which might be a three to $4 million check. And I'll go all the way down to pre-seed where we'll do the 500000 to $750,000 check uh, into a proven entrepreneur that's building an interesting, building a business in a very interesting market. We don't do clean tech, biotech, med tech, and we are very cautious about how we enter the hardware market. We'll do the hardware enabled software plays. And we have a couple businesses in our portfolio that touch on that. But generally speaking, we like software, we like SaaS, we like SMB and B2B SaaS, we like marketplace businesses, and we like direct-to-consumer e-commerce, assuming that it has the right kind of criteria where we believe there's still a category that's right for a new branding environment, like with our investment in article.com. So that's that's the short-form pitch of, of what we look for. I try to stay away from hard and fast guardrails around you have to be this kind of revenue, this level of MRR. You have to have unit economics that look like this because, frankly, being relatively horizontal in terms of the span of and industries that we'll look at, every business is going to have its own version, own definition, and we're going to come up with our own thesis about what product market fit looks like, and we're kind of going to come up with our own thesis about what enterprise value creation is going to look like. For example, marketplaces are incredibly difficult and capital intensive at the beginning to get off the ground because you need to solve the chicken and egg issue of how do you get both the supply and the demand onto the marketplace and transacting at a frequency where there starts to be the network effects involved in the market in the most successful marketplaces. That process is usually quite capital intensive. So optimizing for revenue at the very beginning stages and most, most formative stages of a marketplace in our opinion, is is a failure uh, in terms of how you should be thinking about building long-term, durable enterprise value. So sometimes we view revenue as the most lagging indicator of um, of success for a company, and that varies by industry, by business model, um, and also by by founder and how they want to build the company. And let's say a company kind of checks off all of those marks. Like, how does someone go about? booking a meeting with you, like what does that process look like in terms of partnering together? So this is, this is going to sound annoying. It's um, because there's this, there's this adage in the venture game. They're like, Oh, you need to find these warm intros. And I used to think that's such garbage. Like what a, what an unnecessary kind of bottleneck to introduce kind of a human capital flow into this. But it's, um, Unfortunately, the more I've kind of grown up in this industry, the more I realize that those have the highest probability of becoming being a successful outcome because it means that someone that we trust has almost is is in a way vetting and vouching for that business and that entrepreneur. And it means that we just end up taking it. Um, we do a lot more preparation work and we're, we're hyper engaged if it's someone that's uh, we really trust in our network that's introducing us to an entrepreneur. That being said, we do get lots of inbound um, interest and info at rhinovc.com or any one of our any one of the team members um, of which there's five. It's first name at rhinovc.com is our email address. 
entrepreneurs that are coming in cold without that warm referral, it usually gets passed to one of the deal team analysts or associates that will take the first call. And then we jump on the call, assuming that there's a second uh, second meeting that takes place. I don't know much about the venture space, but I feel like there's not as many ventures doing what you guys do. Why do you think there's a lack of ventures in this space like yours? I think it's absolutely crazy that we don't have more competition. Like it's, it's, to me, it's, it's psycho. A few things end up happening. One, we're still in the early innings of kind of Western Canada more broadly in, in terms of maturity. We have this concept that we call like the four M's of how we think about ecosystem maturity. Let's see if I can actually remember them. It's money. So this is both the quality and the quantity of the capital that's serving the entrepreneurial base in that region. Uh, it's momentum. So is there a kind of a palpable feel that there's a lot of excitement and momentum and energy in the, in the local ecosystem? It's entrepreneurial management. Is there enough talent that's been recycled into the ecosystem that's been there and done it so you're not reinventing the wheel every time you try to scale a business? And it's mentorship from entrepreneurs that have had successful outcomes that are willing to uh, pay it forward and both become angel investors and support entrepreneurs as they go through the emotional roller coaster ride of building a, a, a really big business. <clears throat> so I think if you take that framework, like Vancouver is maybe on its second kind of turn of that maturity cycle. A lot of the other ecosystems in uh, Western Canada are still on that first iteration. But there just not being a ton of, there are definitely some, but not uh, not enough that you could rattle off you know, dozens of successful companies that have gone through the growth and scale up phase, eventually exited the business. And now there's a porous amount of like talent that grew up with that business that's looking at their next opportunity or looking at starting another business. Those entrepreneurs aren't uh, recycling the capital into the ecosystem. So I think that's, that's kind of a fundamental issue of why there's not enough people uh, doing what we do is I think people look at the ecosystems out here and still Unfairly so, I believe, view them as uh, immature and not enough deal flow to justify setting up shop. The other piece I would say is that the most acute and inefficient part of the funding continuum for a startup that is a venture-backed business is that pre-seed and seed and pre-series A stage. That is largely still a local investment game. There's very few funds that are not based in Western Canada that would be willing to fly up and spend time to get to know the entrepreneur in Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Saskatoon, Winnipeg, wherever it happens to be for a $500,000 or a million dollar check. The economics just don't work for those funds to be able to dedicate that kind of time and effort and resources to make those scale of investments. Where that equation changes is once a business has matured to a Series A stage and someone's evaluating a $10 million check or a $15 million check, of course, they're willing to fly and spend the time to understand the business, understand the motivations of the entrepreneur and build that enduring relationship. So we view the most acute and constrained to the local funding ecosystem stage of the market is pre-Series A, which is why we've planted our flag of wanting to be the best uh, funders for the best and brightest entrepreneurs in Western Canada uh, at that stage. And then capital becomes dramatically unlocked and much more global at that post-Series A stage. 
Super interesting. I think that there's a huge wave of the company、um, being more mature. I mean, we have Thinkific, we have yeah, Clue, Jason's company Clue that just raised a bunch of money. So I think there's so much talent in Vancouver, and there's going to be a huge wave coming with all of these companies. And to your point, like recycling back and building the community even more. Well, I, I appreciate you referencing two Rhino companies, but but I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um. I wonder,、um, Jay. I mean, I feel like you're a visionary, you're an opportunist. What are the companies you would like to see more of in the future? What are the trends that you want to invest in? That's a really tough question. One thing that I believe is, and because we spent so much time with this business, I think we have an unfair lens into the scale of this market opportunity. The rise of this creator economy. So the What Thinkific is the types of entrepreneurs that Thinkific is servicing is、um, a new tidal wave of entrepreneurship, similar to how Shopify enabled both digitally native e-commerce entrepreneurs to stand up a store without having knowing a line of code or without having to design a single pixel on their website, or allowing、uh, brick and mortar entrepreneurs and businesses to have an omni-channel solution with e-commerce add-on. The rise of the digital entrepreneur and digital economy and digital goods, be it、uh, podcasts, long-form written content on Medium、um, or Substack <clears throat> or online courses, and you know this, what we're doing right now is a testament to this. I believe the rise of these digital goods and digital services is a, despite it getting a fair bit of attention recently, is a still an underappreciated opportunity in terms of. The products and tools and applications that can better serve the needs of of all these creators out there, and the the opportunity that I am particularly fond of at the moment is if you take an example of Shopify that built an app store and a partner economy that is now larger than the revenue that Shopify itself is generating. There's going to be that analogous opportunity with the platforms that enable the digital creators. So the Thinkifics of the world eventually will have an app store where there's going to be the opportunity for entrepreneurs to be building applications and building venture scale businesses focusing on this creator economy. So that's that is that's one area that I'm particularly stoked on. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Before coming to UBC, I was a business development manager at Traction on Demand, and we worked in the Salesforce consulting space. And like Salesforce, a great example of having that community, that the the app exchange, and it, there's like so many jobs created, and it's a win win situation where it's not only partners benefit, but Products built on Salesforce benefit. I, I totally agree, but here here's the catch. I think there is, unlike most things in life and in market, there is a true first mover advantage associated with app stores. If you are early to an app store's development and you're pushing product into an uncluttered category subcategory. You are able to get the downloads, the likes, the kind of momentum you need to stay on top of that category. So I believe there's a true first mover advantage within within App Store. I also want to share this company I've been following that aligns with the tools to support creators, and this is a company that I've been spreading word of mouth. This is the type of growth I would like my future company to have. Is somebody who loves the product so much I don't even use the product, but I've been telling everybody else to use the product. I don't know if you heard of Circle allows you to create communities. 
Yes, I have. Very funny that you bring that up because I think it's an underloved and underappreciated community enablement platform out there. And I think, I think they've struck entirely the right chord of, Hey, don't build your community on Facebook or some other platform where your customers are, your customers and engaged stakeholders are not really your engaged stakeholders. Build it yourself, own it, white label it and have all the functionality of a best in class community and completely white label to your own brand and style. I think they've 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 hit a, a really good chord there. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Design is beautiful, and I love that. Yeah, it it's really serves um, an individual creator, but it can serve companies too. Without a single line of code, companies can manage communities, and and there are tons of like CMS. And again, working at, at Salesforce, there's a huge market for communities, companies wanting to build a better relationships with their customers, and I think that it just has that versatility and the intimacy yeah and the interaction um, that I don't I haven't seen anywhere else I still think there's an opportunity in this community space that is not being fully addressed by circle and I think there's the opportunity to build embedded community experiences within some of the platforms so that you don't have to platform hop between a thinkific and a circle or a kajabi and a circle but it's embedded within that platform. So going back to the original thing that I'm, I'm stoked about is applications which are inherently embedded experiences within that core platform. Time is a limited commodity. Why is it so important for you to invest it into the community? Most people, when they're asked this question, it comes down to putting your if you put your shoes on of what I wanted more of when I was a student, it was not more academic exposure. It was more commercial and real life, frankly, exposure to people that are actually doing shit in the market. And that's, that's why, that's why I, I give my time is because if I put my shoes of like the student life on, that's, that's what was desperately missing. And despite kind of the best efforts of, I think, the UBCs and SFUs to offer compelling and, and good entrepreneurship education programs, they still you still need to go through that cleansing process of remove the academia BS and bring some commercially minded uh, people involved, and that's that's the approach that I take and why I'm why I'm keen on giving my time. Hey, it's Alice here. I had to edit out the last part of our conversation because someone in the background came in to microwave something which sounded a lot like popcorn. <laughs> Check out the show notes if you are curious about what books Jay gives to every entrepreneur after Rhino Venture invests in the company and who he admires. I think Jay is a really genuine and smart guy and I encourage you to reach out to him at jay at rhinovc if you have any questions or are interested in partnering together. Thanks for listening to the show this week. If you want to listen to previous episodes, subscribe to our newsletter, or give me feedback, you can go to BehindTheStand.com. I can't wait to hear from you. I'm Alice, and you're listening to Behind the Stand Podcast. Behind the Stand.